0: Yeah. But I I lived in Athens for 8 years. And so there's a you know there's a part of my heart that just that loves Athens and uh, and even you know you know I like the Braves even though I love the Cardinals. And I I like Georgia even though I love Auburn. But my family I remember when I told my dad years ago I said they offered me that job in Athens. UGA, And he said, well, you're not going to take it, are you? (laughs) And I said, yes, actually, I think I am. And he said, well, could be worse. Could be Tuscaloosa. (laughs) But my mom calls me last night and says, what happened to your bulldogs? And I'm like, Mom, in the first place, they're not my bulldogs. And in the second place, whose mother... Trash talks. <laughs> so, I don't know. You know, I'm just one of those people like, you know, if if Georgia's winning, then everybody considers me an Auburn fan. And if Auburn's winning, everybody considers me a Georgia fan. So, I, I can't win, but that's, that's okay. I'm good with that. Uh, let me say a couple of things about David, the Davids. Uh, David Scott. Um, my first memory of David Scott at the University of Georgia, I think it was towards the end of his freshman year, he interviewed for a position. We did this thing called Crossfire where we would send a team of students out to do youth ministry in the, around the state. And David had applied, and, and he was interviewing, and I think Steve Hambrick and I interviewed him together. And at the end of the interview, I looked across the, we sent David Scott out of the room, I looked across the table at, at Steve Hambrick, and I said, I don't really know this guy, but I think he probably loves Jesus, and he makes me laugh. So let's hire him. And we did. And he still makes me laugh, and he still loves Jesus. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, he, will, uh, he will do great things for the student ministry here. So y'all get in behind him, pray for him, encourage him. Uh, David Eldridge I've known for a long time. Um, Met him first when he was in the sixth grade, and I was his youth pastor, and we kind of grew up together. Uh, When he was in the seventh grade, uh, we started a a discipleship group with the guys uh, in his class. They were seventh graders. It was people like David, Hicks Poor, uh, some of you know Sean Kirkland, Kyle Bailey, some of those guys, And, and I would meet with them once a week, usually on Friday mornings, before school and so 7th grade, 8th grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, we did that and then I went off to Athens to the University of Georgia and when David finished high school he came to Athens so then I had him 4 more years in Athens and while we were in Athens uh, they built the Ramsey Center and when it opened David and I started going to the Ramsey Center uh, 3 or 4 mornings a week to work out, I know you, you can tell. Um, we would go and work out early in the morning. And, and I remember one morning we were working out. And I said to David, so how's it going with Misty? They had just started dating, been dating, I don't know, for a few weeks or maybe a couple of months. And I said, how's it going with Misty? And David said, well, we've decided that she's my girlfriend. And now we're trying to decide if I'm her boyfriend. <laughs> well, apparently they decided. Um, I want to say that uh, in David Eldridge, and those of you who have been here for a while, you know this. Uh, but in David Eldridge, you have a man who is fiercely loyal, who is incredibly committed, uh, who, who does not waver from his assignment from the Lord, uh, who has unquestionable integrity. You can follow this guy. You, you can trust him and you can follow him. Now, I, I know and you know that, that all of us as human beings we have weaknesses, and we have flaws, and you know, none of us is perfect. But, but I'll tell you this, and I, I mean this with all my heart, sincerely. If I were not a pastor, if I were just a person looking for a church and I was going to choose the church that I went to based on the man who led the church, I would be here. Trust David, and so what I would say to you, as a congregation, is encourage him. Pray for him and encourage him. You, you don't know unless you've done this job. You don't know how difficult it is. uh, I, I don't know. You know how to compare it to other jobs because it's the only job really that I've ever done. <laughs> Except, I did work for two years at Moore and Hanley Home Crafters loading lumber into trucks, and I can tell you that this job is harder than that. <laughs> uh, but I, I do know that uh, uh, recently there was a survey done of uh, the, the five most difficult jobs in America. pastoring a church of over 500, was in the top five. Right there next to President of the United States. So, pray for him, encourage him, take care of him. Uh, He's going to take you places. Uh, I believe that. So, all right. If you want to turn to John chapter 14, Misty, I think I said that exactly the way David wrote it. So you can, no, just. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me, or anything in my name, and I will do it. Now let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would uh, speak to us this morning. Uh, we need to hear from you. Uh, we need to hear your voice. And so we open our hearts to what you want to say and, and what you want to do. Uh, we, we recognize in this room, God, that every single person here, Needs to hear from you. No, no one really needs to hear from me. But we all need to hear from you. And so we ask that you would speak. And if you can speak through me, speak through me. If you need to speak in spite of me, speak in spite of me. But let your voice be heard today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm the fourth of six children uh, born to Tommy and Betty Jean Tanner. Of North Alabama, now I'm actually the youngest of the intended family. There were there were four of us born, you know, just right one after another, a year, a year and a half, a year, year and four, and I'm the fourth in that group. And then there's a five-year gap, and two more are born, but I am the youngest of the intended family. And one of the things I remember about that original family uh, <laughs> is that when, when I was really young, when I was the youngest, you know, and maybe, maybe four, four and a half, five years old, my mom used to take us on Saturdays. She'd load us up in the station wagon and take us to the swimming pool. We had this pool. It was about the size maybe of this room. And, and across the middle of the pool, there was a rope. Y- y'all have seen pools like this, you know, they, they have this rope across the middle, and it's got the little floaties on it. And it's there to warn you, don't go beyond the rope. You know, it separates the shallow end from the deep end. And I can remember as a young thing, you know, with my water wings on, maybe I was, had that little ho- floatable horse, I don't know, you know. I can remember in the shallow end, water, you know, to my thighs or maybe to my waist if I was feeling risky, looking out, over the rope, into the deep water, and watching the older kids play in the deep water. And it always looked like to me that they were having more fun. You know why? Because they were. (laughs) That's exactly right. And what I want to say to you today is you were made for the deep end. You were made for the deep end. A.W. Tozer said it like this. People are fascinated with talk of the deeper life because the average Christian life is tragically shallow. We were made for the deep end, and most of us live our lives in the shallow end. Either playing around, kicking around in the shallow end, not knowing that there's a deep end, or standing in the shallow end, looking out over the rope, longing to go to the deep end, but not, not believing that we have what it takes to go there. And what I want to say to you is that God did not create you for mediocrity, God did not create you just to exist. God certainly didn't create you to be bored, God created you for adventure. He created you for deep water living. My friend Mark Niswander says, if you're going to stand on your own two feet, what do you need God for? Get in over your head where you can't get your feet on the ground, where you're forced, you're in positions, you're in situations where you absolutely have to have God show up. That's what it means to live by faith. Get in over your head. Get into the deep end. So I want to talk about uh, some things today that I believe Jesus wants. Some things that Jesus wants for us. The first thing I would say Jesus wants is he wants us to be where he is. Jesus wants us to be where he is. He's telling the disciples here, I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to come back and get you. I'm going to bring you to where I am because I want you to be where I am. If you read the Bible, the whole story of Scripture is about us being where He is. He wants us to be where He is. God created this garden. He creates man and woman. He puts them in this garden and they're together, but they're there together with God. He created them for Himself. He created them to be with Him and they're walking in the garden and they're having this amazing fellowship. They are the object of His affection. And sin enters the picture. And the most tragic thing that sin did is that it separated them from him. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And sin enters in and they're separated from the God who created them for himself. And if you read from Genesis all the way through the end of the Old Testament, all the way through the end of Malachi, all of the Old Testament is pointing ahead pointing ahead to the New Testament. It's pointing to a Messiah who is coming, and the purpose of that Messiah's coming into the earth, living and dying and being raised again, is to reestablish the possibility of us being with Him. Because we've been separated by sin. And so all of Scripture really is about the fact that God wants you to be with Him. That's why the first Bible verse that most of us in this room memorize is John 3:16. For God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe in him, put their faith and their trust in him, would not perish but have eternal life. Because God wants us to be with him. He wants us to be with him eternally. He wants us to be with him eternally. Spiritually, that's why when Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, What do I have to do to have eternal life? Jesus said, You have to be born again. And that seemed like a crazy thing. Nicodemus said, well, What do you mean? I have to go back into my mother's womb. You know, if you're a visual learner, that is not a picture that you, yeah, but that's what he says. He says that to Jesus, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, you, you have to be born of the Spirit. I've been married to Melissa Tanner for 34 years. She's an awesome lady. Uh, love her to death. I remember the first time I ever saw her. I was driving down Woodward Avenue in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, which is where we're from. I'm driving down Woodward Avenue, and this car pulls into the McDonald's parking lot. And it's a 1965 powder blue Mustang convertible. It pulls in the parking lot, and it stops and out steps this blonde girl. Daisy Duke cut-off shorts. Shorter than any preacher's wife should ever. I'm just telling you that right now. White t shirt she saunters across that parking lot towards the McDonald's. And I'm riding down the, friend with my friend, down the street with my friend Greg. And I punch Greg and I say, would you look at that car? <laughs> and that was kind of the beginning for us. Uh, I also remember the first time I ever kissed her. It was our wedding day. I guess all the young people have gone, so I can tell you it was not. Uh, <laughs> I remember the first time I kissed her, though. Guys, my whole body shook and, and trembled. And I, I went home that night, and I, I told my sister. I had, I had told my, two, my sister, who was a year and a half older than me, that I would never marry until I found someone that I liked better than her. And I went home that night after, after the first kiss. I almost said the first date, but that would have been a little too revealing. I I went home after that first kiss, and I said to my sister, you're out. (laughs) This is it. It doesn't get any better. And we've been married for 34 years. You know, I remember the first time I kissed God. I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. I was so. so lost and God just came and got me it was crazy it didn't even make sense I was sitting in a library studying working on a term paper and, and I heard this I don't know I, it seemed like just an idea in my head it Said, get in your car drive to the church that you went to as a kid get in my car and I start driving that way and I get about halfway there I'm going across a bridge O'Neill Bridge, goes across the Tennessee River that separates uh, Florence from Muscle Shoals and Sheffield going across the bridge and and I hear this thought in my head, it says when you get to the church find the pastor and tell him everything you've ever done I thought bad idea My grandmother goes to that church. He really, he really doesn't need to know. By the time I got to the church, I decided that's what I would do. And I went in, I found the pastor, and we sat down in his office. I told him everything I'd ever done. And he looked at me, and he said, Do you believe at any point in your life you were a Christian? I said, No. No. And he said, Would you like to be? And I said, Yes. We went down to a prayer chapel and we knelt at this altar and I prayed. I I confessed my sins. I asked Jesus to come in and just take over my life. And it was like this dam that just broke and, and all of this emotion just flooded out and my life changed incredibly, 180 degrees, just like that. And it was like kissing God. He wants you. To be where he is, he wants you to be born again. He wants you to know him spiritually so that you can know him eternally, so that you can be where he is forever. Jesus wants you to be where he is. Second thing is that he wants you to know what he knows, he wants you to know what he knows. Jesus lived his life. You read through the Gospels, you see the way he lived. He lived in this incredible sense of divine rhythm. Hear the Father, do what he says. Hear the Father, do what he says. Hear the Father, do what he says. That that was his whole life. He says to the disciples, I only do what the Father says. I only do what I see the Father doing. He lived in this incredible sense of divine rhythm. And, And the reason he did that is because he had this unbroken communion. With his father, and he knew who he was, he knew who he was. Jesus wants us to know what he knows. When I was in college, we studied a guy named Charles Cooley. Uh, I think this is some kind of sociology class, history of social thought, something like that and, and Charles Cooley was a sociologist and if you know him, he, he came up with this theory that he called the looking glass self. And basically what it says is, I'm not who I think I am, and I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. And most of us live there. You know, we really do. We we're, we're kind of build our identity around what we think other people think about us. And it's really sometimes important, you know, to know, especially people that are important to us. We want to know what they think of us. We want to know. know, That's why you stand on the pool when you're a kid and say, Daddy, watch. Daddy, watch. And you just, you know, you'll do it. You'll jump off the side of the pool forever because you you want your dad's approval. Uh, Remember when I was in high school, my junior year, playing football, and I was an offensive player throughout my high school career, but this one particular night, a guy got kicked out of the game, and uh, I had to play defense, so I had to play both ways that night. I'm playing cornerback, and this big running back comes around my side, and I broke down in perfect football position, and he just ran over me. I mean, it it was brutal. You know, he, he hit me he knocked me down on my back, and then he stepped on me twice and kept going for a touchdown. And uh, I get home that night after the game, and one of those unintended children who lived in our house <laughs> named Bill. Bill was eight years younger than me, and so, you know, I'm 17, Bill's nine. He waits up. Everybody in my house is asleep, and I come dragging in. It must be midnight, and Bill's waiting up. Don't think he was waiting up, you know, to speak to his big brother hero. No. I walk in, and little Bill says, Hey, remember that play where that guy ran over you? <laughs> I said, Yeah, I remember it. Bill says, somebody up there by us, when that happened, yelled out really loud, put somebody in the game who can tackle. And I went, whoa, what did Dad say? It was Dad. (laughs) You know, it's important. It's important for you to know how those people who are closest to you feel about you and how those who are important in your life see you. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And John says, no, 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 no. You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, we've got to do it this way. And so he goes into the water. John baptizes Jesus, his cousin, who he knows is the Lamb of God raises him up out of the water and the scripture says the heavens opened and the voice of God sounded like thunder and he said this is my son I love him he pleases me and Jesus lived in that his whole life. This is my son. I love him. He pleases me. And Jesus wants you to know that. He wants you to walk and live your life not based on what your friends think or your bosses think or, or even what your spouse thinks. He wants you to walk and live your life in the knowledge that when he looks at you, he says, this is my daughter. I love her. She pleases me. And if you can get that, it will change you forever. See, Jesus wants you to be where he is, and he wants you to know what he knows there's some things that he knows that are so foundational and, and so incredibly important. You know, my wife and I, we, we, do, we do some marriage seminars and conferences and a lot of premarital counseling. And you know, One of the things we always tell the wives is, ladies, <laughs> your husband, really the thing he needs more than anything else is for you to brag on him. If you'll tell him how good he is, there is nothing he can't do. He will climb mountains. He will slay dragons. Just brag on him, cheer for him. And and the thing that we say to, to the men is, men, if you want your wife to flourish, create for her an atmosphere of security. She wants to feel safe. She wants to feel protected. She wants to feel cared for. And the way that you create an atmosphere of security is through statements of commitment. That's what God does for us. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. There's nothing you can do that will separate me, that will separate you from my love. Statements of commitment that create an atmosphere of security that allow us to prosper and to flourish. That's what he wants us to know. He wants us to know some things about him that have incredible impact on us. So Jesus wants us to to be where he is. He wants us to know what he knows. And he wants us to have what he has. He wants us to have what he has. He says this strange thing. To the disciples, he says, You've seen me do some crazy things. You've seen me do some amazing things. But hey, you're going to do the things you've seen me do and then some. Even more than you've seen me do, even greater things than you've seen me do, you're going to do because I go to be with the Father. And if I go to be with the Father, He will send you a comforter. So Jesus tells the disciples, You need to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. So they go after he's uh, crucified, after he is resurrected and he appears to them. He tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait. And they go to Jerusalem and they wait for this promise of the Father because Jesus has said to them, this is the key. This is the secret. And and basically it's this. What what is the secret? Well, uh, Paul put it this way. Christ in you is your hope. Christ in you, the Spirit of God coming to live in you. The Bible tells us that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead comes to live in you when you put your faith and your trust in Him. Everything that Jesus did on the earth, every ministry that He did, every healing, every miracle, every teaching, was through the power of the Holy Spirit. When He's baptized there by John... When he comes out of the water, it says that the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove and rested on him. then it says in Luke 4 that he was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. He stayed there for 40 days. And then after 40 days, he came back in the power of the Spirit. And that's when he started his public ministry. And everything he did was through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to have that same power so we can do those same things. Paul says it this way. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are some things that that we need to know about that. Number one, when Paul says, be filled, that's in the imperative mood, which means it is a command. It's a command. Paul's not saying, this is a suggestion, this is something you might consider. Paul is saying, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must be filled. With the Holy Spirit. It's in the imperative mood. It's a command, not a suggestion. Secondly, it's in the plural form, which means it's for all believers. It's not, you know, that pastors and missionaries need to be filled. All of us do. It's in the plural form, which means it's for all Christians. And third, it's in the present tense, which means it's a continual action. Actually, what it says literally is, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Every day, every day, every day, more and more and more and more. It's more, more than, you know, a picture of a container that's been filled. It's more like a fire hose with water continually running through it. You see what I'm saying? More and more and more. He never runs out. And then fourth, it's in the passive voice, which means it's not something you do. You don't feel yourself. It's something he does to you. So he wants you to have what he has. The same spirit that raised him from the dead. He wants to live in you. Why? Because he wants you to do what he did. He wants you to be where he is. He wants you to know what he knows. He wants you to have what he has because he wants you to do what he did. He did some pretty crazy things. You read through the scriptures, you see he walked on the water. I had a friend in seminary who wanted to walk on water. He did. He he wanted to walk on water, and and he would go down to the seminary pool at night when nobody was there and try to walk across the pool. I said, you're crazy. And he said, no. He said, I just believe. You know, if I I could just have enough faith and not doubt that I could walk on the water. And so I go down at night, and I said, you put your bathing suit on, you go down. And he said, no, I don't put my bathing suit on because that would be... You know, expecting to get wet and that's not faith so I put on a suit I said you put on a suit he said yeah I put on a suit and I put on my best shoes and I go and I stand on the edge of the pool and when I feel like I have enough faith mustered up I, I step off into the pool and I said not on to the water but into the pool and he said yeah pretty much I don't know how many times he did that Until that one night when he walked out. No, he didn't. He never did. He never, you know. And I'm just not, I'm not convinced, you know, that that God wants any of us to walk on water yet. I do have a dream that one day I will fly, but that's a story for another day. Um, I I don't even think he's that interested in us turning water into wine. But there were some things that He did and that He did on a regular basis that He very much wants us to do. Everywhere Jesus went, He preached the kingdom. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. And He went after those that no one else went after. And I'm convinced He wants us to do those things. He wants us to preach the kingdom you say, well, you know, Tom, I'm not really a preacher. You don't have to be a preacher to preach the kingdom. Truth is, people who are not preachers probably have more impact in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their office places, preaching the kingdom than preachers do. Preach the kingdom, what, what does it mean? It means go everywhere you go as an expression of the grace, the truth, and the love of Jesus. The world is is not really in need of people who can prove to them that they've been to church. But the world is desperately in need of men and women who have been with Jesus and who smell like Him and look like Him and act like Him and sound like Him. Because anybody who meets the real Jesus will fall in love with Him. And so you and I, wherever we go, need to to ask God to give us the grace through the power of His Spirit to be a genuine expression of His love and His grace and His truth. Because that is preaching the kingdom. And we need to heal the sick. Like it or not, everywhere Jesus went, he healed the sick. It was not just a part of his ministry. It was a major part of his ministry. Walking in the grocery store uh, a few years ago, and, and I'm walking down one of the aisles in Publix, and I, I hear this, this voice. This woman says, aren't you that guy? It's kind of a scary thing you know, to have somebody say to you. And I turn and I look. I said, you talking to me? She says, yeah, aren't you that guy? I said, what guy? She said, aren't you the pastor of that church that prays for the sick? I said, well, I'm the pastor of a church, and we pray for the sick. She said, would you pray for my husband? She said, he's got a bad back. He's lost his job. He's been out of work for two years, and things are just terrible, you know, financially relationally, everything. You know, I was tempted there for a moment to do what we always do, just tell you, yeah, I'll, I'll pray for you, I'll put you on our prayer list, da 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 and then leave. Right there in front of the can peas. I said, yes, ma'am, I'll pray for you. What's your name? What's your husband's name? I put my hand on her shoulder right there in the Publix and just started to pray. And God just showed up right there in the aisle. She just started to weep, and I started to weep. and We made a scene in the grocery store. God is calling us not just to have nights of healing prayer at our churches, as awesome as that is. God is calling you and me, as men and women, not just to be an expression of God's love, but to be an expression of God's power. Where we go. Peter and John are walking down the street. And a lame beggar craw- calls out and says, alms for the poor. Alms for the poor. Peter looks at him and says, don't have any gold, but I'll give you what I got. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And he did. He got up and he, and he walked. In fact, he leapt. He danced. And if you and I will be bold enough, courageous enough, and believe enough to to pray for the sick, we'll see some dancing in the streets. And it'll be fun. It'll be exciting. So he wants us to heal the sick, he wants us to cast out demons. Some of us don't even really want to believe that there are demons, okay? Can we just settle that right now? There are demons. There are. Jesus believed in them. Jesus talked to them. So, you know, I'm in India one time and I'm preaching. and Right in the middle of the sermon, this woman just just goes crazy, goes ballistic. She's manifesting all sorts of stuff and she's yelling things at me and, you know, I'm a little bit freaked out and, I finished the sermon, a couple of deacons or elders or whatever, bouncers, really. They drag her out the back door. And so it, it, it was a, this Indian church had two services. And so in between the services, we go to the pastor's office, and we're sitting there in his office, and we're drinking tea. And there's a knock on the door, and the pastor goes to the door. He opens the door, and the two bouncers are standing there, and the woman is still just, you know, going nuts. And, and they look at the pastor, and they say, this woman, you know, she needs prayer. She's demonized and she needs deliverance. Would would you pray for her? And uh, Pastor Rubin is his name. I love this guy. He looks at these two men and he says, "We will pray, but first we will have tea." And he closed the door. <laughs> he walks over and he sits down. You know, and I'm you know in my Western mind, I'm just freaking out. I'm thinking, "Are you kidding me?" You know, we're supposed to be Christians here. You're you're drinking tea. This woman needs our help. We need, you know, forget everything. Rush out there and be the heroes and help this woman, you know. Just forget everything. We can do this right now immediately. And he he looks at me, and he's drinking tea. He's offering me cookies that they call biscuits. He he said, you know, would would you care for a biscuit? No. I'm not going to eat a biscuit. Are you kidding me? Drink, guzzle that tea. Get that down, you know. Shoot it. Whatever you need to do. We need to get out here and help this. No, he drinks his tea. He drinks a second cup. I'm just panicking, thinking, you know, we're going to... Everybody knows it's just a window of opportunity. He just relaxed. Finishes his tea and says, well... Would you like anything else? I said, no. Okay. He gets up and he just casually walks over to the door. He opens the door and motions for them to bring the lady in. They bring the lady in and he prays for her and she's delivered. You know, he casts out the demon. He leads her to Jesus. He prays for her to be filled with the Holy Spirit and they carry her out. And now he, she is a part of his church. And I learned something that day. I learned that we set the agenda as men and women of God, as children of the King. When we have encounters with the enemy, he's not in charge. We are. We're in charge. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said it. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I'm giving it to you. He wants us. To take authority over the enemy, over the evil one, and he wants us to go to the ones that nobody else is going to. Jesus always seemed to, to go after the ones that nobody else cared about, you know, the ones that had been left out, ones that were kind of on the fringe. Uh, my brother John, he's the brother between uh, Bill and, and me. He's the other part of the unintended family, and. He told me, he's a pastor of a church in Huntsville, Alabama. He told me that his greatest regret from high school was that he spent four years sitting at a lunch table made for eight with 15 of his closest friends while other people sat by themselves. Jesus was all about going after the lost, going after the the fringe, going after the ones that nobody else wanted. In fact, Jesus chose 12 to change the world, and they were the least of these. Think about it. We, we, we talk about that passage of Scripture that talks about the least of these. When, you, when you've done it to me, you've done it. When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And we always think, you know, the disciples are these you know, great elevated people. But before Jesus picked them, they were nothing. They were nothing. In, in their day, in Jewish culture, from birth to six, at, at six years old, uh, a boy would start school. And from six to ten, he had to learn um, the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I remember in fourth grade when I had to learn those five books, you know, the names of those five books. (laughs) They had to memorize from 6 to 10. They had to memorize the whole books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorize all five books. And then at 10, they had a test to see who was the best of the best. And the best of the best got to go on to the next level. And from 10 to 14, they memorized the rest all the way through to the end of their scriptures. And then at 14, the rabbis came in and they picked the best of the best of the best. And they said, you, come and follow me. And You would jump at the chance. If you were chosen by a rabbi, he's basically saying, come, follow me, I'll teach you everything I know. Come and be my disciple. I'll give you everything I've got. And nobody refused that. It's what you'd lived for. From 6 to 14, for 8 years, it's all you thought about. Well, if you weren't chosen at 14 become a disciple to follow a rabbi if you weren't chosen then what you did is you went back home and you learned a trade you became a fisherman or maybe a tax collector or a cobbler that's a shoemaker not a dessert maker and and that's what you did because you didn't make the cut and so when Jesus shows up and he's walking on the beach and he looks at these guys who are fishermen, you've got to know, they're the least of these. They didn't make the cut. They weren't good enough. And Jesus, the rabbi of all rabbis, says, come and follow me. We look at that and we think, wow, they left everything. Anybody would have jumped at the chance to follow this guy. And he says, come and follow me. When I was in the seventh grade, went out for the basketball team. Twenty guys going out for the team. They cut it down to fifteen. I was still in the fifteen. I'll never understand why they did this, but they cut it down from fifteen to thirteen. And I was still in the thirteen. And then they cut it from thirteen to twelve. I mean Why not just cut it from 15 to 12? But for some reason, you know, I'm in the 13, but I'm not in the 12. So I'm the last guy cut off the team. I was devastated. Couldn't believe it. About a week went by, and and one of the guys got kicked off the team. So the coach came to me, and he said, Tanner, you want to play? And I remember thinking, do I want to be the 12th guy on a 12-man team? You know, is that really what I want? So I went home and I asked my dad, what should I do? I said, I want to be the 12th guy on a 12-man team. What could be worse than that? And my dad said, being the 13th guy on a 12-man team, do you want to play? I said, yeah, I think I want to play. So I got on the team. Second game of the year I started. Started the rest of the season. Because somebody gave me another chance. That's redemption. That is the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is God seeing something in you that nobody else sees. God calling you to something that nobody else believes you can do. God inviting you into a story that you don't think you have what it takes to finish. Understand this. Whatever your dream for your life, His dream is bigger. Whatever you feel like your purpose is in life, his purpose for you, bigger. Whatever your destiny in your mind, bigger. My wife's a huge Winston Churchill fan. I don't even know where it started. But, you know, we have dogs. You know, my, my Winston Churchill's wife's name is Clementine. Our dogs are Winston and Clementine. She has a picture of Winston Churchill in her office. I don't. I'm not sure she even has a picture of me. There's a picture of Winston Churchill. She loves Winston Churchill. When he was 11 years old, maybe 12, he told a guy in his class. He said, "One day, England is going to be in danger." It's going to be her worst hour. And she's going to need someone to stand up and lead her. And I will be that man. <laughs> Who says that when they're 12? And then does it? He says, it's my destiny. <laughs> You have a destiny. You have a kingdom destiny. You have a divine purpose. And it is so much bigger than you have ever imagined. The Bible says it. More than the mind can conceive or the eye has seen or the ear has heard. Greater than all of those things are the plans that God has for those who love him. So, whoever you are, wherever you are, whether you think you have what it takes or not, you need to know this. When God looks at you, he says, that's my son. That's my daughter. I love him. I love her. He makes me happy. He pleases me. When he looks at you, he has a dream that, if you will say yes to him, will absolutely rock your world. Totally incomplete. You will say yes to him. His dream for your life will blow your mind. Tom, I've always been a teacher. I thought I was supposed to be a teacher. Okay. He's going to make you a mind-blowing teacher. I'm a businessman. Okay. He's going to make you a mind-blowing, world-changing, community-transforming businessman. I'm just a mom really really we talked about the five toughest jobs in the world can we just go ahead and admit that mom is number one whatever you're doing whoever you are wherever you are whatever your sense of purpose or destiny or whatever it is That you wake up in the morning thinking about. If you will give it to him completely. And trust him with it. What he will give you back is so much bigger than anything you ever dreamed of. Because that's the way he does things. He wants you to be where he is. He wants you to know what he knows. He wants you to have what he has because he wants you to do what he does. Now let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that that you love us, that you've chosen us, you've called us to yourself. We thank you that you've invited us uh, into this this drama. You, You didn't have to. You could have fixed everything just with a snap of the finger. The day after Adam and Eve sinned, you could have just fixed it. You could have spoken it. Boom, right there, everything's fixed. But you chose to invite us into this drama. How incredible is that? Thank you for calling us. Give us the grace and the courage Every day to say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think think you have uh, prayer teams. And uh, we'll keep you but just a couple of minutes.